May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So here we are, still in the season of Epiphany. We have left our nativity scene up because, well, it's Christmas summer in the world. The Eastern Orthodox Church has only just begun a week ago, so uh, we're going to just leave it there for a while. But also, there is a tradition within the Church of England that from Christmas Day through to Candlemas, which is in February, all of that 40 days was Christmas. So, um, Christmas and Epiphany together. But this is the season of Epiphany, and that's partly why we've left um, the, the nativity scene up, because our Magi, our Zoroastrian priests, have only just arrived, not, not, what, not kings. Uh, who knows how many there were? Matthew didn't include that in his version of the story. Uh, just Magi. And there could well have been women, so... You know, that whole three kings, it's not quite appropriate, but never mind. The season of Epiphany is uh, about how God is revealed in Jesus, and it provides a time for us to particularly reflect on that and to reflect on how that revelation is made available to all people. So last week we heard Matthew's story of the coming of the unknown number of Zoroastrian priests, the Magi, and then the unsettling story that results with the death of all the infant boys under two. Bonnie made the observation when we got home that it would have been very difficult for Joseph and Mary to return from Egypt after Herod had died, as the people of that small town of Bethlehem would have blamed them. They had had the dream, they had escaped, and yet it was their child that Herod was after. And so they returned not to Bethlehem, but to Nazareth, a small, out-of-the-way little village up in Galilee. That's Matthew's version of the story. We also heard Mark's unsettling story of the baptism of Jesus with heavens being ripped open and dive-bombing doves. So it was quite an unsettling week last week to begin Epiphany. This week we have the story of Samuel and Eli, which I'm going to spend most of the time talking about, but also the call of Nathaniel from John's Gospel. And next week we will hear of the call of the first disciples in Mark's Gospel. And as we listen to those, we are invited to listen to those all within the framework of Epiphany. So, the story of Eli and Samuel. So we have this uh, picture here. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time this morning trying to find a suitable picture and failed. This one's probably the least cheesy, but they all had, they all had a bit of a problem. And that is, Samuel was a Nazarite. A Nazarite is somebody who uh, abstains from alcohol, abstains from things that will defile him, and doesn't ever have a haircut. So Samson was another um, another Nazarite, and when he cut his hair, he lost all his strength. So the haircutting thing is important, and every picture had Samuel looking very neatly trimmed. A lot of them with ears showing and I went mm, yeah not really anyhow why why was Samuel a Nazareth a Nazarite because um, well actually before I go to that um, just to say that is this is one of my favorite stories in in the Bible I used it a lot when I was involved in youth with uh, in ministry among young people I preached it at my farewell service from the national role in Auckland Cathedral I think it's a really really important story both for all of us uh, in terms of what ministry among young people might look like and 
our role in that, and I mean all of us and not just kind of the youth leaders, uh, but also uh, in terms of helping us think about what call might look like. So who is Samuel and why was he a Nazarite? Well, uh, we have to go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel for that and where we meet his mother who was having some fertility issues, she was unable to bear children, uh, caused her a lot of grief and so on one of the annual treks to the tent of meeting, this is before the temple, so in the tent of meeting, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in a movable kind of temple called the tent of meeting and uh, she was there praying, uh, praying her grief that was in her heart, uh, in her soul and asking God for a son to take away her shame and promising that if she was to bear a son that she would return that son as an offering to God as a Nazarite to grow up under the guidance of Eli the priest. Eli sees her and thinks she's drunk, that's why she can't speak, but she says, no, 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 I'm just really sad. And so he blesses her and sends her on her way, and she does bear a son, Samuel, and when he is weaned, she returns with her husband and uh, returns this Nazarite son and to be trained and brought up under the guidance of Eli. Eli is the high priest uh, in the tent of meeting. It does talk about the temple in the story, but this is well before the time of the temple. Samuel is the, is the prophet who appoints the first two kings, Saul and David, and it's David's son who will be the one who builds the temple towards the end of his reign. So it's quite a long way away in the, in the future. And she gives her son, uh, also um, to say that it's, um, after she bears a son, she then sings a song, Hannah's song, and we hear a lot of echoes in that song and Mary's song, which we used just before Christmas. So there are a lot of links with the biblical story of Jesus. So uh, Eli is the high priest uh, at the tent of meeting. Um, sadly for him, he raised his sons to believe that they were entitled to their lives of privilege, as many privileged people do today. And the result of that is that they did despicable things and they were disrespectful for the Lord. And Eli knew that he had failed them. And he knew because a man had come to them just before the story we listened to this morning, morning and told him that their corrupt ways would bring calamity on them and his all his whanau, all his family. At the heart of the story that we heard this morning is the relationship of trust between Eli and Samuel. It's almost, I mean, I may be imagining this, but it's like Eli knew he had a second chance. He had failed with his sons. They would bring calamity to his family. But now he had a chance to redeem himself with this boy. He, an older man with this boy, now in the time of the story, is often depicted as a young boy, but if you read the story, it kind of sounds more like a teenager to me. So despite his failings, and also despite his failings, Eli has a whole life of experience as priest and a whole lot of wisdom that he's gained in that role. And sure, he hadn't performed his, his, his role as father for his sons particularly well, but he, he still had lived his life faithfully. And it's a, I think it's a really interesting story about people not being written off because they make, in this case, pretty bad mistakes, but God's still using them. And I think sometimes we're a little prone to just write people off 
So in this case, not written off. So when Samuel starts hearing voices in the night, Eli takes him seriously. He could have just fobbed him off, could have just told him to go away, don't disturb my sleep. But he doesn't. And on the th on the second time he works out, actually, or the third time he works out, actually, there's something more going on than just Samuel hearing voices. This could be God speaking. Not something that's been heard of for quite some time. And so he helps Samuel know both how to respond to God and to what God might have to say. Eli knows that he has to listen to what God, God might be saying through Samuel. And he's already had someone come to him and tell him bad things are about to happen. So he's got a fair idea that this will not be comfortable. But he has to help Samuel be honest and truthful because that will be at the at the heart of his of his identity as a prophet to be honest and truthful even when the word is hard he still has to speak it now i think that's what any ministry among young people looks like too often we get caught up on having youth groups and running flash programs and entertaining them but I mean, that hasn't got us anywhere, really, if we look around. All those young people who went through our core youth groups, most of them are no longer part of church. I think it's much more about older people taking the time to build life-giving relationships with young people, taking them seriously, helping them with their life and faith questions, being willing to not only walk with them, but also to listen to what they have to say. And that's why I kind of... That's the kind of thing that I held as central to my understanding of ministry among young people. That's why I don't talk about youth ministry, because it too often just kind of gets conflated down to running a youth group with a couple of youth leaders, and they'll look after the young people for us, and we can just get on with the real stuff. Now, one of the big things of the big themes of Epiphany is listening to the voices from the edge. And that, I think, is a really important part of ministry among young people, that we are willing to listen to their voice, that we are willing to listen to what they have to say. And sometimes what they have to say is not very comfortable, and sometimes we will not agree with them, and that's fine. But the national youth event that I used to be responsible for was basically giving young people a space to have a voice to each other, to those who ran the event. So I worked with a group of young people and young adults to organize that event, and I found that a very life-giving experience, uh, but also to the wider church. And so they would take motions back to the Interdiocesan Conference and General Synod. But I was told by some of the diocesan youth workers that I shouldn't be doing that. We were the ones who should be telling them what they needed to think and say. We were the ones who should be organizing this national event. And young people should just be quiet and listen to what we, their elders and betters, needed to say. And that's certainly what happened almost as soon as I left the job, which was very disappointing. This theme of listening to voices on the edge, as I say, is central to this theme, uh, this uh, time of epiphany. So we have uh, this uh, repeated again and again, the divine revelation coming from, well, it doesn't come from where it's expected. It comes from other places. So even the story of the Magi, it's Magi, Zoroastrian priests, who see the signs and the stars. 
not something that's approved of by Torah, but nonetheless, they see those signs and they act on those and they come to find out what has happened and so that they might worship. Magi, not the high priests, not the powerful, not the scribes, not the educated. Magi from, from outside, from mortal enemies of Rome, are certainly enemies of Judaism. They are the ones who are able to, to acclaim who Jesus really is. We have it again in this story this morning. From It is Samuel who hears the voice, not Eli, nor the prophets. There are other prophets around, and maybe it was a prophet that came to Eli, but it's, it is Samuel, this young boy. You shouldn't have to listen to young people speak to you, but Eli knows that he does, and he has that relationship of trust and knows that God will speak to, to him through Samuel. In Luke's Gospel, it's all about the divine revelation coming from the, from the edge. The Messiah comes to people from a small town in Galilee called Nazareth, which isn't an important place like Jerusalem. Even Bethlehem isn't a, an important place. It's a, it's a small village outside the city of Jerusalem. It, surely the Messiah would come from one of the ruling families within Jerusalem, but no, from a family living in Nazareth. Even Nathaniel is incredulous that anything good could come from this heck town. And Jesus is born among animals, not in a palace. And he's laid in a feed trough, not in a baby's cot. And it's shepherds who are the first to know. The angels go to shepherds and they tell them. And it is shepherds who come and see. They are first. They are first to come. They are first to acknowledge, they are first to worship. Not the powerful, not the high priests, not the rulers, not the educated, not the scribes, not the Sanhedrin, not the Pharisees. Shepherds, people almost at the bottom of the social hierarchy, people of low honour, because they spend much of their year out in the fields looking after their sheep. Too often we forget that, and we think that we... You know, the important people in the church are the one with all the answers. I remember when I was cured in Fielding, we were organising an inter-church service and the uh, one of the evangelical Presbyterian and I was suggesting that we invite the mayor and that would be an interesting thing for us to hear a voice from the, out, from the edge speaking back into us as a church and, and what God might be doing through other people. And I was told firmly by this evangelical Presbyterian minister that the Spirit of God would not use anyone outside the church. The Spirit of God would only speak through the church. I went, huh, I don't, I don't think that's what the Bible says. I don't think I won that one. I might if I can't remember. But I just remember being told the Spirit of God would not speak. Well, I'd only speak, would only speak through the church. Epiphany reminds us that the Spirit of God works through all kinds of people, especially those on the edge. And I wonder what church might look like if we had spent a whole lot less time being sure that we had the answers, more time listening to the voices from the edge. For example, through much of our history, the Diocese of Waiapu was originally a Māori diocese. Conducted its affairs in Te Māori. Māori, was almost entirely Māori who came. The synods were theological debates. But then the settlers came. And, and they said, no, 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 we are the ones that know what church is all about. We're English, thank you very much. 
Uh, and so very quickly Māori voices were silenced and they were marginalised. Uh, and I think we paid a price for that. Um, we as Pākehā were far too confident in our own wisdom and our own ability to build a church in this land. And I wonder what it would have looked like if we had bothered to be more humble and to take a curious approach to all of this and to listen instead. I also wonder, uh, this is the old youth worker in me, um, I wonder what this church would look like if we spent less time trying to entertain young people, trying to spend less time telling them what they needed to believe and more time just standing alongside them standing alongside them and helping them to listen so that they may be found by God and speak out of that back to us. Found. It's not how we usually call it, talk about things, is it? Well, we do sometimes say, have you found Jesus? And whenever anyone says that to me, I always want to reply, and sometimes I do cheekily, I didn't know he was lost. Actually, it's not Jesus that needs to be found. It turns out, if we read today's stories, it says repeatedly that it's us that need to be found. If we go back a little bit, Andrew is found by Jesus, and then Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter, and he helps Peter be found by Jesus. In the passage we heard today, Philip is found by Jesus, and then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, and he helps Nathaniel be found by Jesus. Found. The theme is supposed to be called, but the word that was used today was found. Found. Uh, and one of, the, one of the commentators I listened to and I read, she kind of pointed that out to me this time. I've never noticed that before. And, and then she went on to say that she thinks the story of the Samaritan woman is Jesus finding her. Jesus deliberately goes through Samaria, doesn't have to go that way. In fact, it's not the, it's not the best way of going. And he goes to the well at midday and he waits on his own for this woman to come out and he finds her. And after his conversation finding her, she goes back into the town and helps others be found by Jesus as well. So it's not the way we normally talk about it, but it is the way John Newton described it in Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now am found. Found, again. And the interesting thing about being found, at least in the way that it's portrayed in the in, in the Bible is that when you are found, your true identity is revealed. In Samuel's case, his true identity is revealed as a prophet. And so Eli teaches him in that very first time of hearing God's voice that his response needs to be to speak those words truthfully and honestly to wherever they need to go. He needs to not be afraid, but to stand on that identity, having been found by God, and to live out that calling, that identity. To speak the words that he's been given by God. In Nathaniel's case, Jesus says his true identity is as a true Israelite. And nearly all the commentaries then point out that the first person who was called Israel is Jacob. And 
uh, Nathaniel is described as a true Israelite without guile or deceit. Well, that is not how you would describe Jacob, is it? He was full of guile and deceit. He grabbed his brother's foot as his brother was being born. He cheated him out of his birthright. He cheated him out of his blessing. He then he was cheated by his father-in-law, uh, and then he ran away um, with all his stuff. Uh, so he wasn't a particularly honest person. And it was Jacob, Israel, who had the dream of angels ascending and descending to and from heaven, Jacob's ladder. And so in Nathaniel we have a Jacob figure, but unlike Jacob, Nathaniel is without guile, without deceit, and his vision will be angels ascending and descending onto the Son of Man, the human one, Jesus. In each case, after being found, we are invited to live out our identity. We're all found. Isn't that why we're here at church this morning? My own experience of that is being found is not a one-off thing. It is an ongoing, lifelong thing. And so a big part of my time away was reflecting on what it meant for me to be a Franciscan priest. If I was to say that I was found, I was found and now that I am called to be a Franciscan priest, what does that mean for me? How do I live that out once I retire in May? And there are, I've talked a bit about that in my letter, which described that, um, that letter of resignation and retirement. Some of the motivation behind that, and I don't have any ideas about what I'm going to do. I'm going to make some space so that I can live that out. But that is the question. How might I live out my true identity? as a Franciscan priest. So, some questions to finish with. When might we say we were found? What are some of the stories we would tell? And when we were found, who were we revealed to be? And how have we and how do we continue to live that out? And how do we help other people especially young people, be found. I'd like to take a moment to reflect on that and, uh, and to talk to your neighbour about that, share some of those stories, some of those reflections.